0: I think we stop being artists if we stop growing. And if we're ever just like completely satisfied, this is the best thing I've ever done and now I'm gonna stop, then we're probably not artists anymore. I think we're plagued by never being fully satisfied, but that's what helps us keep creating.
1: Brian Smith here and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process. And make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Kylie Rothfield's on the show. Kylie is a Los Angeles-based singer, songwriter, and guitarist whose songs combine elements of soul, blues, and pop. Here's a short sample from her 2018 single, Newport. We Kylie is the whole package. She has a beautiful, soulful voice, she's a brilliant guitarist, and she performs effortlessly by herself on stage with just her guitar or with a full band backing her. Her 2020 single, Too Late, is about the hopes and dreams of young artists, contrasted with the harsh realities of the journey to success. In this interview we talk about Kylie's journey from Danville, California to Boston where she attended Berklee College of Music. She then made her way to Nashville where she made connections with fellow songwriters and started selling out shows. She went on to play music festivals opening for Mary Lambert and Lisa Loeb and then landed in Los Angeles where she was selected to be on The Voice on NBC where Alicia Keys picked Kylie to mentor and coach her throughout the season. We also talk about Kylie's appearances on season 2 of Songland a songwriting competition series on NBC featuring Tony, Emmy, and Grammy winner Ben Platt from Pitch Perfect fame. Her performances on The Voice and Songland are still available on NBC's website and on YouTube. And while all of these achievements at such a young age are impressive, as a fellow blues guitarist, I have to say that one of Kylie's coolest achievements is the fact that she is sponsored by Epiphone Guitars. She plays some beautiful epiphone hollow bodies which give her performances unique flair and personality. I think you're really going to enjoy this chat folks. Kylie explains a lot about the music industry, the business and logistics of co-writing songs with other musicians, and what she loves about music production. She also gives advice for aspiring musicians trying to break into the business and tells us what we can do to support musicians and venues struggling to survive in this pandemic. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat. With Kylie Rothfield, Kylie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We were just talking about hollow body guitars and uh, why Kylie gravitates toward that style and shape of a guitar. So, what kind of led you toward that style of guitar?
0: Uh, you know, I grew up actually listening to a lot of blues, like Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters, and a lot of like the old school, like Delta blues artists, and. Uh, even like the Mississippi Sheiks and and these artists of like the 1920s. So whenever I see a hollow body guitar, that's just what I think of. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I needed something because I, I loved playing just like singing into a microphone and playing with an electric guitar instead of an acoustic. And I felt like the hollow bodies and the semi-hollows, like they just had more umph to them. Mm-hmm. And they had like more richness to the tone. And yeah, it was kind of like the perfect... I guess like accompaniment to the kind of music that I was playing at the time. And I feel powerful when I'm holding one. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, they tend to be beefy and heavy and Yeah. And also mine this is this one behind me is my first hollow body. I've never had one before. And for me, and I'm I'm not very conversant in guitar language, like tone and, you know, how to describe why you like a guitar. I'm kind of like
0: Same. I look at
1: <laughs> I look at guitars almost like I look at wine. Either I like it or I don't. Mm-hmm. This hollow body, though, is so responsive to any little vibrato or, or movement that you make on the fretboard. It just seems like it lends itself to a, a blues, uh, you know, to blues music very well.
0: Totally. And it, I feel like, because I play it through uh, a Vox AC15 amp and it just has that grit, like the combination of the two just yeah i'm kind of the same as you i don't know as many of the technical terms i just know if i like it or not <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. so yeah it was so cool to see you show up i watched the songland uh, episode that you were in last oh, night yeah, and and you show up with that guitar and i was like that's quite a statement to make oh man uh, when you show up with that hollow body and it just it's it's like a i don't know it just it, it's almost like a, a part of your personality when you show up with that type of guitar
0: yeah. And that's like that one's my child. Uh, Epiphone actually gave that guitar to me a few years ago. And that was the first time I'd ever been given anything like that. So yeah, I, I honestly treat it like my child.
1: <laughs> yeah. So how did that deal with Epiphone come about?
0: Uh, so I was actually playing... Um, I already had an Epiphone. It was just like a, a little... Um, it was like a 390 or no. What was the model that I had? It was, it was a semi-hollow that I had already bought because I loved it. And I was playing at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, just playing like a little writer's round. And a friend of a friend was there watching the show and noticed I was playing the Epiphone. And one of his friends was a rep for the company. So he just like took a little video of the show and without telling me, um, reached out and sent the guy all my music and some photos. And and then they reached out about a sponsorship. So I was really stoked about that.
1: That is so cool. I would imagine that that's like on the top of every new musician or someone trying to break into the industry the top of their list of things to achieve sometime in their career and you achieve that very early it sounds like
0: yeah and i mean i was i was really shocked and and pleasantly surprised and you know there's so few female guitarists especially female guitarists that play electric or that are in the spotlight for playing electric so, like the little girl, you know, the 12 year old in me that decided I wanted to start playing electric guitar, like when that happened, it was just, uh, I don't know. I, I definitely cried <laughs> when I got that email.
1: Speaking of the 12 year old in you, I, I've read up on your biography and it sounds like you were writing songs all the way back when you were 12 years old, self taught with guitar. Yeah. Tell us about the song Too Late and how it relates to your childhood, if it does. Cause I, I watched the music video for it. And I see the home movies that are part of that video. And it really choked me up seeing that. Uh, I don't know Aww. why it did. It, it's <laughs> like, I don't even, I don't know you beyond that, that beyond the meeting you that on That really room,
0: fun, tie, yeah. That <laughs> the rooftop,
1: rooftop uh, bar uh, where you were performing. <laughs> but I, I watched that music video and um, I find myself, probably because I'm a father and I have a, a daughter that's probably your age. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really touching. But tell us about that song and and how it relates to your childhood and what it's about
0: yeah so I f- you know when you're really young and and you start out, you kind of have people in your life, whether it's friends or family or you know people in your community that when you start to play shows and they hear that you have a passion for something, they really get behind you and it's this whole like you know follow your dreams and you're gonna be a star if you just work hard and you know you have it and and you're told all of these things, and you just dream so big at, at that age, especially um and then there's this reality that sets in when you get older. And, you know, I'm I'm 28 now and I've been writing songs and, and playing out since I was 12. And, you know, the reality of the industry sinks in a little bit and, you know, you don't necessarily achieve all of the things you thought you would when you had these big dreams when you were a kid or you don't achieve them in the time that you thought you would. And the song is sad in that sense, but it's also, in in my view, positive in some ways, too, because, you know, just because a little bit of sense of reality kicks in doesn't mean that you give up. And I think continuing to pursue something, even when the realities and the obstacles um, set in, I think continuing to do it anyway is, it really speaks to the passion of musicians, Mm. especially right now with COVID and what's going on in the world. And, you know, with the new, you know, streaming platforms and and the way that it's hard to make money at it anymore. And and all of these things that have kind of gotten in our way um, that we didn't know about when we were kind of naive kids, just doing it because we loved it. In a way, we're still kind of those kids doing it because we love it. Because that's kind of the only reason to stick with it when you've gone through so many ups and downs in the industry. It's because that little kid in you still loves it just as much as you did back then.
1: Yeah, I like that vulnerability. because, And that's another theme that seems to run through the song Lonely, which was later Ghost. Mm Mm-hmm. Or is that what it was called? Ghost in the song. Yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, we changed it to Ghost. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and you know, in that song, you're talking about the the loneliness of of being in the city. At least that was the original theme before it shifted more to maybe a kind of a love song. Mm -hmm. But but um, that vulnerability of talking about how lonely it is in a big city, and also how just because you work hard and you're talented doesn't mean that it's going to be easy seems to be an inspirational theme for young people that are looking for guidance from people that have been through everything that you've been through and everything that you've accomplished.
0: Yeah, I think as writers, it's almost our responsibility to write from a place of honesty. I don't know if if everyone's the same. I've always felt like I feel things a lot deeper than other people. And because of that, I, I want to be able to tell the truth. I want people to hear something and, and say, I'm not alone. Because I think if we if we don't sort of admit to these feelings that we're having of emptiness or loneliness or we're not achieving enough, or then people just see this sort of painted picture of our social media lives where things are going great and everyone's happy. And, and then they think to themselves, well, why am I not feeling that way? Mm-hmm. Why am I feeling like I haven't accomplished enough? So I sort of have felt, especially in recent years, almost this responsibility to just really tell the truth. Um, because if I'm not vulnerable, then you know there's nothing that is in me that's going to connect with the people listening and tell them this person is giving you their heart and giving you a chance to open your heart up too.
1: Mm -hmm. I I think what what I'm noticing in your songs and your music and your songwriting is that even if it doesn't sound like a blues song, you're still bringing that blues sensibility to a pop song in terms of just the sadness that we have to confront head on and recognize and admit to and I I, think, I
0: appreciate that you like that's really cool that you noticed that. That's not a. that's not something I hear often. So I thank you for that. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well I, I try to I try to do a deep dive into to the material of my guests before I interview them. And that's just what I well noticed. I'm not a I'm not a music critic by any means, but um I, I really enjoyed, you know, first of all, I enjoyed going back to our first meeting. Um listeners don't know how we met, but In Marina Del Rey on a hotel rooftop bar, my friend Max Flower and I were having dinner and and saw you and and heard you perform up there. And that was just a couple of years ago. It it, it wasn't any, I, I think it wasn't before 2018. So it was either, no, it was definitely 2019 because I- yeah. Yeah, I think it was 2018, 2019, but- COVID
0: time, it's all a blur. Yeah, it's hard hard to
1: track time anymore because it seems like 2020 has been an eternity. Yeah. But you were performing and I remember the wind was blowing pretty hard up there and your pages were (laughs) blowing around. And my friend Max, who's kind of an extrovert, offered to hold your sheet music for you while you were singing Yes. and and then i gave you my card because i was down there for interviews on my podcast and and then i followed you on social media and ever since that time i've been you know following your career and and uh hearing about your songland experience and watching that it's just so cool to to see somebody in real life doing something where you're you know you're hustling to make a living as a musician up on this rooftop bar but at the same time all of these people that are there to either hear you perform or maybe incidentally they're just they're having dinner and you're there and it's just a uh, a fortunate circumstance for them they have no idea just how many cool things are going on in your career <laughs> and in your life it's and I didn't know at the time either and now I'm finding out that I mean, you're, you, you went to Berkeley College of Music and had all of the success over in Boston. You were in Nashville per, for a period of time and you really followed this trajectory. Uh, if, if I were to script this out, like I'm going to write the, the screenplay of a superstar songwriter performer, <laughs> it would be your story. You know? Wow, that's cool! <laughs> but it just hasn't ended yet. It's still happening, you know. Yeah, I was about
0: to say we haven't hit the the really good stuff yet. I, I yeah, don't think. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're, on so our way. we're
1: We're in the second act. <laughs> Whoever's maybe.
0: writing this story, let's speed it up. Let's get. Yeah. it. No, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> so cool. So let's talk a little bit about that. You, you know, you start off at, at age 12. It sounds like being very musically inclined, and your parents, I would imagine, are the ones who are playing all of the the muddy waters and and giving you access to. You know, the blues music and the eighties music that you listen to and mm-hmm. uh, but you're you're a child of the nineties though, right?
0: I am, yeah. So I was I was born in ninety-two. Okay. But my dad, like my dad's an Aussie and he's sort of like almost what I would call a hipster now, but unaware of it. <laughs> and so he introduced me to a lot of the classics, like, you know, we listen to the Eagles constantly and Fleetwood Mac and Elvis Costello and Zeppelin and, and the Rolling Stones. But he also had this really cool sort of obscure taste in some sort of different or maybe sort of weirder bands. I mean, he was really into Midnight Oil. I think he saw them 60 times.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Super into them. Mm -hmm. And then my mom, on the other hand, was like B-52s, Devo, straight up 80s pop music. So I think I got my love of pop from her and my love of sort of like classic rock and, and blues from my dad. And neither of them are musicians, but they both just love music. So I definitely got my love of music, just like being in the car with them or being in the house, just, it was always on.
1: So how did you teach yourself guitar?
0: So I actually went to, I think it was two lessons. I I got a guitar when I was 11 and my parents were like, we got you lessons. And I went to a couple and I just did not practice. I didn't stick with it. I didn't like being told. I was very spunky at the time and I didn't like being told. You need to play this. This is how you need to learn. And this is how you need to play. So I wasn't practicing. My parents are like, we're not going to pay for lessons anymore. And then once they kind of did that, I think I did the typical teenager thing of now I'm going to learn how to play because they're telling me I'm not going to anymore. Mm -hmm. So I bought guitar for dummies. And uh, YouTube was a big thing at the time just coming up. And so, yeah, I would just watch videos and I learned how to read tabs from the book. And I just learned how to play songs that I liked and that I wanted to play. I learned at my own pace and just became obsessed. Like, I would be in my room two or three hours a day and my family would always tell me to turn it down. Uh, and yeah, I just played constantly.
1: You know, I, I had a similar path in learning music. I, I was forced to take piano lessons and um, I was actually fired by my piano teacher <laughs> for not practicing enough. And also, she screwing fired up. you. I totally, I embarrassed her at recitals. You were paying
0: her, like yeah. that's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> she,
1: she's like, I don't have time for this, you know, the, oh because i would sh- I would show up for recitals and I it was not ready and it was embarrassing.
2: Uh,
1: but then I picked up a Alfred self teach book, like just one book for learning the guitar when I was fifteen, and I had my dad's. Um, you can see behind me. I don't know if you can see the Ovation. Oh, I see
0: a, a PRS. So I there's a, a, yeah, ooh.
1: there's a PRS, and then in the middle there's a there's a, an ovation. I'm not sure if you can see the white body of
0: oh yeah yeah yeah
1: of it. It's but it's actually the microphone is kind of. I was of about
0: clear. to say I can't see the full. Oh, okay, so it's so, like a classical nylon string.
1: Classical nylon string ovation. Uh, my dad flew the. He was the tour pilot for the band Heart. Wow. And so, and I, I would imagine that as a. uh young budding guitarist in the nineties and the, in the early two thousands that you at some point heard Nancy Wilson's uh, intro to Barracuda and crazy on you and, 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 all of those.
0: Oh, I tried learning how to do that thing with the pick where you slid it across to get thing. Oh, thingy.
1: it's just, yeah. She's insanely talented. Yeah. So anyway, that guitar was, I think Howard Lease's guitar from heart and he gave it to my dad wow because they were friends and then when my dad passed away in 2003 uh one of he had hawked it to one of his friends um, later in life my dad <laughs> did and this so oh my friend uh, or my dad's friend called and said hey do you do you want this guitar back and I said absolutely uh, so that's the guitar wow. that i initially learned to play on when i was 15 and i still have to this day it's my favorite guitar and i think that there's something i mean going back to your Comment about how you learned to play and how it was. I think more productive. It sounds like for you to be given the space to just kind of go in whatever direction you needed to go and not have a teacher framing it for you. Yeah, um, that's the way I felt too. It's just there's something more organic about the process when you have someone who's genuinely interested in learning an instrument. Yeah, and you you just let them go at their own pace and direction.
0: Yeah. And funny enough now, like I've had some students, I've had some young guitar students uh, and I try to be the, like, I try and teach them in a way that I would have wanted to be taught back in the day. So instead of like, here are the scales and here are the, you know, that stuff's all important, but it's like, what's your favorite song that you've always wanted to learn how to play and let's play along with it and let's rock out to it. And I also tell them, like, don't try and force yourself. Like if, if pick up the guitar for 15 minutes a day, just to get your hands used to it, but never try and force yourself. Cause you, you, you know, I don't want you to not love it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think some people learn differently. I think some people really like structure and they really like kind of being told what to play and how to play it. And you know, I think you and I just aren't <laughs> like that. You know, I think yeah. everyone learns just in a different way or they get motivated in a different way.
1: So did you have to then get used to structure uh, when you went to Berkeley? Was it a completely different experience at Berkeley?
0: Yeah, so when you audition for Berkeley, you have to pick like one instrument to kind of be your major instrument. And so for me it was voice because I I never really felt like I was good enough or I didn't know enough theory or anything to be a guitar major.
2: Mm.
0: So or like it's a primary instrument and then I majored in songwriting, but once I got there, it was like everyone was better than me. Everyone was a thousand times better than me, and that's the best thing that could have happened to me because it really pushed me to learn about all these things I hadn't learned about before that I thought I didn't need to know. And I learned a lot about theory and jazz chords and you know it's I think that there's like value in both. I think there's value in learning your own way first and then picking up on the things because it helps me in in sessions or you know when I'm directing a band, it helps me to kind of know the language. But because I started off learning because I loved it, you know, I don't feel like it's all just this like cerebral thing, mm-hmm. but yeah, Berkeley was tricky, and then i they actually let me my last semester I was there I was just there two years, typical Berkeley story, <laughs> but they uh let me take some guitar classes, even though I wasn't um a primary guitar student, and so I was by far the worst in these classes, but yeah, I just i it made me work really hard, it made me want to push because I'm like naturally competitive, so those like two years of being at Berkeley. It was like more than I learned in the eight years previous playing guitar, just in that like two year period.
1: That sounds intense.
0: It was intense. I mean, no one ever got any sleep. Like, I got like three or four hours a night because I was working full time. You have to take like nine classes. It's not like a college where you take four or five because the classes have less credits. So it was intense, but it was somehow so fun at the same time. I did not want to leave. Like, it was, you had like the best musicians in the world from all over the world surrounding you constantly and everything was free except the school it was incredibly expensive but you know <laughs> you got to, other than the 60 grand a year yeah you know you got to have musicians that are some of the best in the world play on your sessions for free and everyone just always wanted to make music i kind of miss that little kick in the butt that that was because i kind of wish i had that now forcing me to try and get better constantly
1: You know, it's interesting talking to creatives over the last year and a half from all disciplines, including music. uh, It seems like a common thread that they all talk about in terms of being important in their development and their career advancement is finding a community and a tribe. And I would imagine that Berkeley is like the perfect place to find your, your community and your tribe of people that are going to be with you for the rest of your life. Did you did you make relationships, uh, form relationships at Berkeley that have continued through this day?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That was the best part was I had like my little group of friends and every night after kind of an exhausting day, we would all gather in this lounge in the dorms and just talk about life. We ended up forming a band together called Eight Count because there were eight of us, horrible name. I don't <laughs> think we ever played an actual show. We just talked about all the things we were going to do. And then I had a little band of guys that uh, backed me up and we were just, we were so close. We would do little weekend trips to New York together and they actually, uh, my drummer and bass player actually moved to LA before me. So when I've played full band shows here, I've gotten to play with them. And a couple of my best friends from college still live here or in Nashville. And yeah, you just, you talk about the old times and it's just great having that community of people that knew you when you really you know, we're in this like intense period of your life where you're learning so much and discovering all this stuff about yourself. And then, yeah, just getting to kind of grow with those people is so cool.
1: So how does the collaboration process work? I I saw it happen actually on screen when I watched Songland, Mm -hmm. where you're incredible, by the way, to, to see all of these immensely talented song producers and writers, like just instantly giving feedback that Improves the song in some way. Totally. uh, Or at least possibly, anyway. But how does that work in terms of like credits and royalties? And how do you navigate the business aspect of the songwriting process when you're working with other people?
0: That's a good question. That's like, that's a part of the industry that so many of us sort of hate because it's really complicated. Like the way that splits and masters and royalties and publishing, like the way it all works, we don't really learn about that. And if you take some business classes at Berkeley, like I took one and and luckily kind of have a decent understanding of it, but it's it's complicated. But one of the best like lessons about collaboration that I learned was in Nashville. Um, I moved there after two years at Berkeley when I was 19. And the whole city is just about like going out every night, meeting new people, co-writing. I had never really co-written before. I didn't know that was a thing. And the really cool thing that I still love about Nashville is the rule there is when you're in the room everyone gets an equal cut. Hmm. So if there's four of you in the room and one person just sits there texting the whole time, they get 25%. <laughs> it's just kind of like this rule of like fairness and it's like if if we weren't all here in this space together, this wouldn't have been created. So yeah, I mean, I kind of tried when I moved to LA to kind of take that with me cuz I think it's just a really cool thing and La can be a little bit of the land of I wrote this one line, so I get ninety percent and I wrote this, so this is more important and and you know, my thing before I collaborate with someone is just let's just split it up exactly how it is so no one feels pressure to, you know, I, I just think it's not a it's not a conducive environment to creating something great if you're worried about splits and percentages and who's getting what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in the actual writing process, a, a valuable thing I learned at Berkeley, I was a songwriting major and and often I would have to write three new songs a week just for my class assignments. And then you have to go in front of a class of like 15 crazy talented people and a really talented professor and play something that you might have only had 30 minutes to work on because of your schedule. And then it gets torn to shreds. It just gets, you know, and not in a mean way, but they just, they give you really honest feedback about all the ways it can be improved. And I'm really glad I went through that because it makes you realize like, you know, to be less sensitive in a session and to try and do what's best for the song Mm -hmm. rather than worried about like what you provided or this means so much to me, don't ruin it, all this stuff. Like it definitely taught me how to be in one of those rooms and to just listen to what other people have to say and respect what they have to say and come to an agreement or a common ground on a lyric if everyone's fighting it or,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, everyone brings something new into the session. So, and Songline was cool because working with Esther, like, She's just like a tough lady. She's been through all of it. And she's worked in, in really big sessions. And I would fight her occasionally on a couple lyrics she tried to bring up. And in that room, I learned the lesson of like, if someone has this experience and it's worked for them in the past, and they're kind of a veteran just to listen. And sometimes we forget in a situation like that, just to listen to what the other person has to say. It's kind of like lessons for a relationship. I don't know. I think like writing is kind of like trying to be in a healthy relationship with somebody.
1: That makes a lot of sense. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. It's interesting the cultural difference between Nashville and Los Angeles that you... Mentioned how it, it sounds like maybe a little more self interested and cutthroat in LA versus Nashville, which is a little more communal, a little more hippie, and and mm-hmm. less focused on, all right, what percentage does that person get? It's just, you know, we're not here to fight over bi- we're, the business, gets in the way yes. of the creativity. So let's just get past this right now. Everybody gets an equal, equal cut. I love that approach. Yeah. I'm a, a trial lawyer by day, and I collaborate with a lot of attorneys wow. throughout the country. I, I have a practice that takes me all over the country. And so I work with a lot of other attorneys, and that's pretty much my approach with them is, you know, let's not focus on, all right, you get, you know, 70% versus 30% or whatever. It's like we're in this together, and let's move past that very quickly and figure out how to work together in a cohesive way. So I like that. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, The thing about LA, because I don't want to dog it as just being this like shallow, flaky, you know, kind of city. I think there's a lot, maybe people are in some ways more upfront here about being cutthroat because there definitely are cutthroat things in Nashville. There's a competitive edge there too. But I think what I've learned about LA is that you just have to find your people. And it takes a little bit longer because in Nashville, everyone's like, let's all rat and drink whiskey and just, you know, like everyone's so chill and welcoming immediately. Where in LA, I think people have just maybe been through a little bit more. So there's like a little bit of a wall that you have to break down. But I would say the community I've found out here of like collaborators and co-writers have been the best of any city I've lived in. So I think it's just a matter of like here it just took a little bit longer to really find like the good, good people that I could trust and that are open to working together without worrying about the business side of things.
1: You you mentioned that there's th- this class experience where you're told you have to get up there and and perform something that isn't ready, right? You haven't worked on it very long. I would imagine that's terrifying. At some at some point, it, you, you just have to get past the fear of failing in front of other people. Yeah. A long time ago, I interviewed a voice coach out of New York, and one of the things we talked about was uh, this concept of because I had been in voice classes with him in a different context but this concept of getting up and he would and it was an exercise that he would have us do in a group session where you get up and you just have to sing a song no music you sing a, a song that's just at the top of your head it doesn't have to be your favorite song and just sing it and as you're waiting for your turn to come up it was one of the most terrifying experiences. I can look around me and there was so much anxiety in the room like, all right, what song Uh. am I going to sing? Am I going to remember the lyrics? And then you get up there and you see them terrified and and people are shaking. Mm -hmm. You can see them visibly shaking. And it just made me realize that like public speaking and performing, you know, there's studies that show that that is a top fear Above even dying. Wow. It's above snakes. It's above dying. That there is this fear of being judged and and failing in front of someone Hmm. and or an audience. So my my question to you, Kylie, is was there a point when you felt that fear in any point, like whether you were when you were 12 years old or 15 or or 20 or or now? And if so, how did you get past it?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. People I think because I've doing I've been doing this for so long kind of you know would naturally assume that I don't get nervous anymore or you know that it's it becomes easier but in a weird way I mean I get really nervous. I get I get super super nervous especially if if it's like one of those gigs you saw me at like a corporate 3 hour cover gig in a setting where people aren't necessarily there to hear you. It's kind of a different feeling but in in a small venue I still get terrified. And I have little tools to help me One is that I can't talk to anybody before I go on stage. I've, if there's not a green room, I will hide in my car because that just makes it so much worse. But yeah, even when I was backstage uh, for Songlander, the voice, like, you know, I just, I internalize and I have to kind of hide in my little shell and just get through it. But then once I'm like a song or two in, all the nerves and everything go away. Mm. And I think it's just one of those things of like, one thing that has helped me is just using that adrenaline and that fear to push a better performance. That's kind of the only thing for me that has has really helped in the past. Like if you are kind of afraid of the fear that you have and you're like, this is going to make me mess up or like, I can't go, you know, using that and saying this is actually going to help me perform better because adrenaline can kind of push us to sound better and, and do better. That's one of the tricks that helps me. And also I'll do like, you can be really nervous for 10 seconds. So I'll count to 10 and just say, feel all of the most nervous <laughs> feelings you could possibly feel for ten seconds and then you gotta let it go. I like that. But I, I don't know, there's there's performers like even Adele, you know, would get sick on stage. She still hates, you know, gets so nervous performing. And yeah, I think it's it's the perfectionist in me. And I'm definitely kind of a neurotic person. So it's it's the fear of not sounding great or not being accepted or being vulnerable. That stuff I think will always continue to be scary. But I think that also means If you're scared of it, that you care and that it means something to you.
1: I'm curious about what you learned from The Voice and Songland. And were there different lessons from each experience, uh, different takeaways?
0: Yeah. I mean, the biggest takeaway for me has been community. Like the people that I've met throughout those experiences, it, it felt like we were war buddies going through this new thing together and navigating it. And we tour together and write together. We used to say before we went on stage, because it feels like these shows kind of pit you against each other, that music isn't a competition. We would all like hold hands and say, music is not a competition, which is really cheesy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm grateful for my the opportunity to be on both shows. I know how lucky I am. I know how many people audition. I know it's it's so lucky that I became one of the people that got to be on both. But what I learned the most is that, there's not going to be this handout from the industry. There's no one that can make it happen for you. You know, I think a lot of us had expectations after The Voice like, oh, we're doing all this and we're meeting all these people and we have millions of people watching us and this is it and they're going to help us get this career now. But the the sort of sad truth of it is that they don't. You know, their their job is to produce a television show and they treat us so kindly. I love the people backstage, the hair and makeup f- family. I still talk to them all the time. Like the producers are amazing. But their goal is just to produce television. So what I definitely learned is that there's never going to be anyone that's going to do it for you. If if anyone helps you along the way and gives you a hand and gives you a push, then it's just something to be grateful for. But you just can't ever have expectations that there's going to be a show or a, a famous person or a producer or anyone that's going to sort of create this career for you. Right. It really it comes down to your own work and... Yeah, anything else is just kind of a bonus.
1: That's interesting that you you use the word expectation, and um, I think that's so that's like a philosophical word because our expectation going into any experience is going to determine what our feeling is coming away from the experience. Totally. Uh, because if that expectation is not met, then it's it's disappointment, it's heartbreak. What a great lesson to learn, because I would imagine, like you're saying, the the expectation for me as an outsider. I would think that anybody who gets the opportunity to be on The Voice or Songland, it's like a game-changing moment in their career, and then it's the gravy train, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Then you got the record deals and everything else. But it sounds like, and this is true of any any creative space, I I think it's, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. And it's all about your last, like whatever your last hit was or your last Mm -hmm. performance, to take you to the next stage
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you can't stop hustling. And, and that's, that's my takeaway anyway from what I'm hearing about your experience on those shows. You just can't uh, say, all right, I'm done.
0: That's it. <laughs> yeah. Madonna referred to it as, a, I think it was Madonna that referred to it as a treadmill. We're just, you gotta keep running on the treadmill and you're never really reaching a destination even though you're moving forward technically. I think we, we stop being artists if we stop growing. And if we're ever just like completely satisfied, this is the best thing I've ever done and now I'm going to stop, then we're probably not artists anymore. I think we're plagued by never being fully satisfied, but that's what helps us keep creating. So, it's kind of that weird conundrum, the artist conundrum.
1: So, what what are you doing these days to stay engaged and stay inspired and staying creative because I know there's some limitations on being able to perform, especially in California Mm -hmm. um, and the coronavirus. So what are you doing to get through this?
0: Yeah. you know, I want to be honest about this question because I think there's this pressure from everyone like, oh, COVID's happening. So I'm going to make the album of my career and I'm going to do all this work and all this stuff. But I want to first be honest and say that there are days when I get overwhelmed by what's going on in the world and I just want to bake a loaf of bread and you know, not make music. There, there are some days where because of what's going on in the world, I'm trying to find that balance of mental health and continuing to create. And some days it's really easy and some days it's not. But one of the things that's helped me a lot is a huge dream of mine is to produce. And I've co-produced my last few singles, but I've never fully produced something completely on my own. And I've also started producing little tracks for friends and things like that. So I've kind of taken this time to like really learn the art of production. And, you know, I've I've bought, I've invested money in plugins and I've started just kind of doing little things on my own just to kind of learn that craft. Because a huge goal of mine one day is to do a record that I fully produce, write all the music and play all the instruments on. Mm. I can't really play drums yet. <laughs> I might have to program those, but yeah. So yeah, that's that's a, a huge goal of mine. Um, and having this downtime has actually kind of given me that gift of being able to work on that without, you know, outside pressure or anything like that.
1: So for my listeners that don't know what a producer does and what production is, can you describe that in in lay terms?
0: Yeah, I mean, I always think like the producer, I would call sort of the, in a sense, like the idea man. And I, I don't know, I'm trying to think like the best way to say it, but I think that you're kind of making the decisions of what you want the track to sound like and what elements are in it and what direction you want to go. And production can be just that. Like when I've co-produced in the past, I've had an engineer working with me and I've said this is what I want it to sound like and this is what I want to happen and then he kind of does all the the actual technical work to make that happen. So yeah, I think it's kind of just the person who takes this track and brings it to the next level and helps turn it into sort of a finite idea. I don't know if that was a good description of what a producer does. but No, it
1: is. <laughs> I, I, I think that's very helpful. I mean, my idea of a producer, when I think of music producer, I think Rick Rubin.
0: Oh, yeah. You
1: know, s- someone that just kind of swoops in. He's a legend. He's an icon. And everybody's like, oh, Rick, Rick, you know, help me turn this album into something, you know, elevate it into something that no one else can elevate it to. Definitely. And um, because you are a trained musician, you know, Berkeley-educated musician and vocalist, I would imagine that your production skills are going to be that much more valuable because producers are not necessarily musicians.
0: Exactly. That's a really good point that I I forget sometimes and I think some people don't know is that you don't have to be able to play a single instrument to be a producer. It's really more about vision than anything else. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so if you if you listen to music, you appreciate music like Rick Rick Rubin does. Because I don't even think Rick plays an instrument. But
0: I'm not sure that he does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he has a really nice beard. I, I'm going to feel but. bad
0: if somehow he co- he listens to this and is like, actually, yeah, we're going to get sued defamation. Of-
1: <laughs> I can actually see him playing the bongo. Uh, I could yeah. totally see him playing like a conga or, or just a in the conga back of the studio just
2: <laughs> such a
1: hippie character yeah but um but how I would just imagine that you would bring so much to the table as a producer because of your understanding of music and knowing what works in the song i mean you're a songwriter too, I mean, you write songs, you perform, you're a musician, you're trained, so production makes total sense. What about engineering are you? Do you have the aptitude? Is I know I don't. I have the <laughs> software to do it, you know, GarageBand and and all of the you know Pro Tools and whatnot. I do not have the aptitude to figure out how to edit and mix and do all the things that engineers do. Have you been able to figure that out over the years?
0: Yeah, that's kind of been the disconnect for me. Is like I've always known what I wanted something to sound like, but and actually, really interestingly enough, not to sort of name drop here, but The person who convinced me that I should be a producer was actually Alicia Keys. I worked with her on The Voice and we kind of maintained a relationship for a couple of years after and she gave me great advice. And I told her one day after kind of leading a session for this artist I was writing with, like, I think I might like want to be a producer. And in a very Alicia Keys way, she said, you are a producer. Hmm. You know, that's just a very her thing to do. Just (laughs) that's it. And I'm like, oh, I am. Okay. But yeah, the disconnect for me has always been the language of engineering. And it's it's different to say, I want this track to sound ethereal, or I want my voice to sound up front, or I want, you know, and then actually learning how to do that is a whole other world. And that's the world that I've immersed myself in the past few months. And I it's, it's such a cool thing because all the engineers I know, they're not like, these are my secrets that I'm going to keep hidden on how I make this sound good. Engineers are like the people, when I have worked in studios, that sleep on the couch in the studio and they work 30 hours straight and they kind of exist in the darkness and don't get a lot of credit. And so they love sharing their process. And every time I'm in a session with a new producer or engineer, I just kind of stand over their shoulder and obnoxiously ask a thousand questions. And I've never had anyone be annoyed. Like they're so happy that someone is asking them what their process is that that's half of the, the way ways that I've learned about engineering and mixing is just... Getting advice from really friendly engineers that I've met.
1: How soon after working with Alicia Keys and Ben Platt did you get past the starstruck stage, or were you ever starstruck? Because I'm the type of person that when I go to the Sundance Film Festival and I see, because I was there this year doing interviews, and it's just it's hard for me to get past my reverence for these stars, you know. But but then you have to get past that to be able to do interviews properly you have to recognize the humanity in people. They're just just—they're just like us, you know? Totally. So did you pretty quickly get past that starstruck stage with Alicia Keys and, and Ben and the other folks that you've worked with?
0: Um, so I've worked in a lot of different odd jobs, especially in Nashville. And I came across a lot of celebrities that would come in and things like that. I'm not one of those people that like totally freaks out if I see a celebrity, but if it's somebody that I respect and someone that's like a hero of mine, then I lose it. And Alicia was that for me, like just a hero. She's won, what, 15 or 16 Grammys, one of the most talented writers and singers and musicians ever, and just this amazing human being. And she has this like presence that I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, she's just a special person. So, true story, the first few times we worked together, I just cried. I would, li- <laughs> <laughs> like, she would start talking to me, and I would get tears in my eyes, and I didn't know how to stop it. And you know, she just, yeah, that, that was a whole thing. And there was even one time after the show where I randomly got a message from her. Do you want to come hang at this event tonight in LA? And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) And invited me to this house she was renting. And I was sitting there while all of her assistants were like getting her all ready. And, uh, we went into this dressing room where she was going to practice this duet. She was going to do with, um, Andra Day. Who does that? You know, that song rise up that really famous, uh, and I'll rise up, I'll rise through the day, I'll rise. Anyway.
1: It's beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it's such a good song. And they were practicing together. And I just lo- I mean, I just kept, they kept trying to bring me in and be like, "How, oh, how are you? Nice to meet you. And I was like, you guys sound so good. This is so cool for me to just be sitting. You, ga- you guys sound amazing. Like I was acting like. A fangirl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, and Ben, of course, got super nervous when I first met him. And Shane MacAnally is one of my songwriting heroes, and he's just such a lovely human. But the nerves went away pretty quickly, like they do most times. But Alicia, I don't think I ever stopped yeah. feeling starstruck around her.
1: I, I noticed on Songland when you were given some praise, the way it hit you, I think one of the hosts said it was a spiritual experience for her hearing you sing. And, and you could just see it in your face, it just like washed over you that you had this validation from peers and also mentors, you know these iconic people. Um, It just must be a really special experience to have access to that type of talent and validation to kind of keep you going in your career.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, like validation doesn't last forever, but it's, and I don't wanna feel like I need it, but sometimes, especially when you're in a difficult phase and you don't know where you're going, it's sort of like a gift from the universe kind of telling you you're on the right path. And yeah, that man, if they had shown that whole 30 minute experience on the show, that was one of the best, most emotional days of my whole life. Say, I I really didn't care in that moment. Like, of course, I wanted him to record the song, but it wasn't about winning. It was just, you know, the things that were said in that in that room or that's what I've always wanted to hear. Not like, oh, you have a good voice, but like your music made me feel something and it made me feel less alone. And it was, you know, the background singers like the the gospel choir we still message about that day sometimes cuz everyone in the room was just crying like it was just mm-hmm. it was I'll never forget it it was so memorable
1: so in 2021 assuming that venues are going to reopen and let's just hope for the best that there's a vaccine and, yeah. and we're going to start to see kind of a normalization back to seeing shows again
2: mm-hmm.
1: how important our performances for revenue, just to survive, versus you know streaming revenue and other ways to make a living as a musician.
0: Yeah, it's that's that's been it's been difficult to not be able to perform for emotional reasons, but also like financial. That's that's a really good point. It's it's kind of the only way left, um, or one of the only ways left to make a viable you know to make money in this industry, and it's that's been really tough to not be able to have that opportunity anymore. I think it's going to be really great when we can perform again, because I think people aren't going to take it for granted. And I think there's going to be some really special moments in those rooms. Mm -hmm. But my honest biggest fear right now is some of my favorite venues, like Hotel Cafe and the Troubadour, for example, are just in danger of closing down forever. So I really hope that we don't lose these places. But yes, you know, streaming revenue, I have a song that Called Newport, which I'm actually re-releasing a sort of revisited, remixed version of it um, in like a week and a half on on October second. And that song has like three hundred fifty thousand streams or something. And I think I've made maybe seven hundred or eight hundred bucks from that. So it's just not. I
1: saw that. I saw. Is that the meditation sessions video that you're talking about? Oh
0: yeah, there is a. Um, there's a live video of that one too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. But the streaming, you're talking about Spotify streaming or that type of revenue generation. Okay. Wow. Yeah,
0: it's just not a viable way to make enough of a living. You know, that song's been out for Mm -hmm. three years and I've made 700, 800 bucks, even though it's done really well. So I think you're going to see a lot of musicians struggling and starting to take part-time jobs or just trying to creatively find ways to make a living doing music. I think the world is just going to look a little bit different for a period of time.
1: Are there any things that my listeners should be focusing on if they really want to support venues that are at risk of going under or musicians just generally? Like what is the the most impactful way to help musicians? Is it buying a hard copy CD or or a vinyl? Is it adding their playlist to your Apple iTunes? You know, what can we do to help musicians through this difficult time?
0: I appreciate that question a lot you know, I think it's in a way all of the above or whatever you can do. Like if if you don't have the financial resources to buy somebody's vinyl or donate when they're doing a live stream performance um, to their accounts or their Patreon accounts, like even just listening a bunch and sharing the music with your friends and continuing to sort of stick with us through this experience is the best you can do. Just whatever you're personally able to do to support local musicians because, I don't know, I'm, I'm personally a little bit afraid of what this could mean if these venues shut down. And so just even just watching their live stream show or if they have a new song coming out, just sharing it on your page or adding it to one of your playlists uh, or just telling one person about this artist and supporting them. All of those little things really add up and mean the world.
1: So, uh i know we have the pandemic to consider for 2021 but what projects are you focusing on that you're excited about and want to tell listeners about in the coming year
0: um so i'm working on finishing up an ep and possibly an album right now um, through dVg records which is this small label that i'm um, i've just started working with so our biggest goal is to be able to put out like a full-on ep and album in 2021 we're thinking about different places we can record and yeah, so that's definitely going to be like the main focus and maybe trying to come up with creative ways to play drive-in shows. You know, that's that's sort of my biggest goal for next year. Um and I'm working with a new publicist, Courtney Daniels, and I think we're talking about doing some charity events and doing some outdoor concerts and maybe some brand partnerships, just trying to figure out different ways to keep going and stay afloat during this time.
1: Great. Well, um you know, one one last question that I, I like to ask guests such as yourself, because you have so much to offer young people in terms of life lessons. If you were in a room of high school students who were considering, or junior high students, who are who considering making a career out of music, what advice would you give them as they consider that path?
0: That's a great question. You know, I would say... First of all, make sure you're always surrounding yourself with the best team and community you can, to always make decisions like by following your gut, and to continuously practice and try to be as good at your craft as possible. And then finally, just to not forget why you wanted to do it in the first place, to kind of hold on to that initial passion and feeling and dream, no matter what gets thrown your way.
1: Beautifully said, Kylie. Thanks. I, I, For my listeners, I will uh, I will put this in the show notes, but you can find Kylie on social media at uh, Kylie Rothfield on Twitter and uh, Instagram as well. I believe it's the same handle for Facebook. And also, um, I think your YouTube channel, is it Kylie Smiley or is that a different channel? <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey,
0: right now, it's Kylie Smiley Zero. But if you just type okay. Kylie Rothfield into YouTube, I'm going to eventually have to change um somehow change that url because that i forgot about that
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> that's and old school you, and of course your website is is a fountain of information about your music yeah. and your bio kylie rothfield.com mm-hmm. and uh kylie thank you so much for making time for us and uh thanks for for joining us
0: thank you so much this has been awesome this is my first podcast i appreciate it oh great talking to you
1: oh you you're a total pro i, I would have no idea that you're <laughs> uh, the your first time <laughs> hey thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode if so i have a favor to ask can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review your feedback is what keeps this podcast going you can also check us out on instagram twitter and facebook with the handle at DreamPath pod and as always go find your dream path